0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch.
1: Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Uh, My name is Ryan. If you don't know me, if you do know me, that's still who I am not conditional personality yet at this point in my life. Um, uh, we're continuing on with our series, uh, Piercing the Veil, that you know, we really feel like the, uh, the Lord was calling us to this season of, of gathering up and around the person of Jesus again, which I know is a terribly novel idea for a church to do, but uh, to, to, for us to time and again come back to Jesus open-handed and to allow him to reveal himself to us anew. Because a lot of times I think you know, we can get so familiar with how we think Jesus functions and what it means to be the church, what it means to be the kingdom, um, that we actually become numb to it. And so there's this continual invitation I think from Jesus for us to come back to him. And to allow him to surprise us, to to breathe new life into things that have maybe been dead for a little while. And what we've been doing this season is allowing the parables, the stories of Jesus to do that for us. That the parables of Jesus are these mysterious little stories that he tells uh, that are meant to kind of disrupt us and disorient us and to kind of wake us up out of our normal understanding of how the world is supposed to work. And when it kind of breaks open that reality, we're begin to to see the kingdom anew, and we're able to step into it uh, with a new depth and a new vitality. And um, today, I'm really excited. We're doing one of my absolute favorite parables um, in the Gospels, uh, which is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And we're going to get to that one in just a moment. But you know, one of the things as I was kind of reading and meditating on this, this parable this week, and, and even thinking about some of the ones that we've been doing already in this series, I realized. Most, if not all, of the parables are intended for religious people, okay? Uh, the, The parables were not intended for people that aren't already followers of Jesus. In fact, they're often written to people that are already sitting in the pews, that are already following Jesus, that already have some understanding of who God is and what it means to be religious, what it means to be part of the family of God. And so Jesus is telling these disruptive stories to wake up religious people, and I think that's an encouragement for you and I, that these are the parables, they're for us first and foremost, that it shakes us up, that it wakes us up, that we might be the ones who continually kind of shed that numbness and that status quo and come back time and again with this expectation that we're going to meet God and he's going to move. And so my kind of thesis for you this evening is that the kingdom of heaven is defined by God's radical kindness to all, regardless Of status, And so what I want to do is first kind of explore this idea of kindness. What is kindness really within the kingdom of God? I want to talk a little bit about human value in the kingdom, how God chooses to see his children. And then I want to talk about the reward uh, for each of us when we step into the kingdom. So I'm going to pray, and we'll jump right into this if you'd pray with me. And so, Heavenly Father, uh, we testify the truth that you're here and that you're with us and that you are for us. You're not against us. Lord, I thank you so much for these sweet times of worship where in one voice we can sing over ourselves these truths. You know, that we're all coming in at different points in our lives, our journey with you, even even things that were maybe on our minds and our hearts today that sometimes it can feel a little bit hard to believe or it feels a little bit harder to press in. But thank you, God, that you've given us each other uh, to be able to sing truth over one another, to sing truth into that deepest part of who we are. Uh, to wake us back up to the reality of your presence. And so, Lord, give us that, that sense of high expectation that when we come here together, when we worship you, we meet you and we're transformed. And oh my goodness, <laughs> thus, thus spake the Lord. Uh, and so may the uh, words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to begin kind of by asking you this question. Will you suffer the radical kindness of God? Will you suffer the radical kindness of God on your own behalf and on behalf of other people and I want to show you kind of what I mean by that word suffer I want to get you know it's very important that we're reading the parables of Jesus in their context all the bits of what's going on around the story are imperative for us understanding what he's really talking about and so this parable is going to be in Matthew chapter 20 but what we find is that Jesus's ministry is kind of gathering up steam as he's marching towards Jerusalem for this final confrontation against the powers and the principalities of evil so much of Jesus's ministry he spent in Galilee which I've said is kind of, like, it's kind of like the Wisconsin of the Middle East. You know, there's not a whole lot going on there. You can kind of go under the radar and do your thing. But then Jesus, he's like heading into the big city where all the power is held, and he's ready to to have this kind of confrontation with evil personified. And so the ministry of Jesus, his words and his actions start to gain this greater and greater gravity as he's really marching towards this opportunity that God is going to take to conquer evil and to inaugurate an entirely new world that we call his kingdom kingdom. And so in Matthew 19, we're seeing Jesus uh, interacting with his disciples who've been with him for a couple of years. They've watched, they've learned, they've asked questions, uh, and, and they're really coming to this point where Jesus needs them to understand how the kingdom functions because that's kind of what he's giving them as his inheritance. And even we know towards later in the story, Jesus says to uh, his disciples, like, it's good for me to to leave so that the spirit can come, but I'm, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. I'm giving you this as your inheritance so that you can carry it out into the rest of the world and continue the work that I am doing. And there's this really fascinating little passage in Matthew 19 that I think sets us up so beautifully for understanding this parable. It says, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, if you're a big, how many big uh, KJV fans? Do we have any King James fans in here? Just love that King James. Every other sentence begins with the word and. It's awesome. It's one long run-on sentence. But in the King James, Jesus says to his disciples, suffer the little children unto me. Suffer the little children. And I love that, because here's what I think is actually going on. Is that the disciples, like you and I, are kind of judging human beings' value according to their culture, their society. So even more so in the first century, children especially weren't seen as human beings, they were property, and maybe once they come of age and they get a job and they start being more responsible, then they have some sort of value or humanity, but they're, they're very little than that. So these people are bringing these children to come and to meet Jesus, and the disciples see the children and think, oh, this is an inconvenience to him. These children, they're going to be some sort of distraction, they're, they're keeping him from his work, the really valuable work of investing in us. And so they go ahead and they take it upon themselves to just go ahead and and try to to take these little children. You can give me this little uh, car here. That's awesome. Suffer him onto me. It's fine. Um, And so they're going to go ahead and just do Jesus this little service of taking care of him and, and being his filter. Who gets access to the Almighty? Who gets access to the Lord, the Rabbi? And so they value people a lot of times the way I think you and I have learned how to value people. And I love that the King James translates it like that because what Jesus is saying to them is, suffer the indignity that the people that you don't think are worth very much are of immeasurable value to me. The ones that you think only can get on the outer rim of being able to step into my presence, those are the ones that are allowed to crawl up into my lap, to lean their heads against my chest and to listen to my heartbeat." And so I think it really begins to show us something about what's going on inside of the disciples. They're still wrestling between this kingdom understanding of human value that Jesus is trying to teach them. And this kind of status quo, normal, ordinary human value of who we think is deserving. Who we think is in. Who we think is out. And I think it sets us up so beautifully to understand then that this parable is Jesus' response directly to his disciples' sense of their own personal accomplishment. Because right after this little instance with the children, Peter says, well, what about us, Lord? We've given up everything for you. What's the reward that we're going to get? Like, we're the ones that have worked the hardest. We've been the most faithful and the most dedicated, and which is really ironic coming from Peter, if you know his story, that he's just, he's so certain. Like, we're, surely we're going to be the ones that are, like, right on the inside, and our reward is just going to be the best reward. Because, number one, the way that we value human beings then determines how we value our own merits and our own abilities, because we're always comparing ourselves, and we're always ranking ourselves with the people around us. Who's more deserving or less deserving? Who's more powerful, less powerful? Who's more valuable and less valuable? And so Peter is doing this on behalf of all the disciples, was saying surely we must be the ones that are on the inside because we've given up the most. And I think that beautifully sets us up to hear this parable. So we've, we've talked about this several times before. You can uh, read along on the screens. But I would encourage you, if you want, just to close your eyes and to allow the Lord to give you some sort of an image or a vision that you can hold on to to see what's really going on uh, within this story that Jesus tells. So this is Matthew 20, verse, uh, beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those that came were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. "'These who were hired last worked only one hour,' they said. "'And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day.' But he answered one of them, "'I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money?' Or are you envious because I am generous? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Even in our modern world, we have very similar settings to this parable. I don't know if you've ever, you know, gone by a hardware like one of the big hardware stores, and you see sometimes a lot of guys that are out there waiting to be picked up for day labor. Or there's, you know, there's uh, several organizations in town and that's kind of what they do is you can sign up with them and, and then whomever needs some day labor can come by and they can recruit people from that. And so when we kind of understand that that's really the setting of what's going on, then it kind of helps us to see what's the underlying theme of this parable. So the landowner goes out you know, at 6 in the morning at the beginning of the workday and of course he chooses from among them the, the best and the brightest and the strongest and the most capable. And then he comes out at 9 and he picks some. And he comes out at noon and 3 o'clock. And then 5 o'clock. There's only, a, there's only an hour left in the workday, And he comes to these guys and he says, well, why, why are you still here? Why are you still in the marketplace? I said, well, well, no one's hired us. And if we begin to use our divine imaginations, we can begin to understand maybe why no one's hired these guys. Maybe they're not the strongest. Or they're not the smartest. They're not the most... Capable? Maybe they're defective. They've been overlooked. They've been discounted because they don't measure up to whatever the standard is for the going rate that day. And so the landowner tells them, no, 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 I want you to come and to work as well, even if it's just for an hour in the day. And I think that really is the powerful message that we're finding here when we begin to understand what is the reality of the kingdom of God and why is it so radically different than the way that we normally uh, create human society, the way that we value one another and the systems that we build in order to function well. And so I think the most powerful thing of this parable says that the kingdom of heaven isn't interested in fairness. It thrives on the radical kindness of God himself. Because the question at hand here is what does justice look like within the kingdom? You know, and I've said this many times before, as human beings we have kind of two energies that we put out into the world. There's the energies of worship, which is us establishing relationship with God, and then there's the energies of justice, which is the way that we treat other human beings. And hopefully, God willing, those are connected, they're they're integrated that we're always asking questions of worship. How are we demonstrating and building intimacy with Father God? But in justice, how are we viewing other people because of the love that God has for us? And how are we allowing that love then to determine how we treat and how we value other people? I think it's so easy in our modern society, just as it was in the time of Jesus, to, con- to mistake the idea of justice being something about Fairness. Even think about the symbol that we use for justice in our own society, kind of lady justice, and she's blind, and she's got that balancing thing. What is that? Scale, Scale, thank you. (laughs) I speak English. But she's holding this scale, right? And so it's kind of this justice is this cosmic balance, whatever it takes, right? And it it really kind of goes back to that idea of an eye for an eye, right? We build societies on this, tit for tat. Whatever you've done, usually... you know, something sort of crime, there's some sort of appropriate punishment that's, that's to, meant to, to, to balance the scales of the universe. There's an even amount of good and evil in our world, and our, and our best hope is to be able to kind of maintain that. And that's often what we think of when we think of justice. But I think that's very impoverished understanding, and I think that's why so often in human society we just see this perpetuation of these cycles of, of injustice, that we never seem to really get it right, we never seem to really grow or change, because we're, we're stuck in this idea that all we're pursuing is fairness that's based on merit. Who deserves this and who does not deserve that? Using these scales of how we value human beings based on your talents or your skills or your good looks or whatever it might be. I think there's a radical difference between what we understand as justice based in fairness and what the kingdom considers justice. Which I think is motivated by kindness, which comes from the heart of the Father. And I think this is so very, if you walk away with nothing else except for this, I think we've accomplished something. When we look at other people, we say, what do they deserve and what do they not deserve? Because what we're really asking is, what do I deserve and what do I not deserve? But I think when it comes to the father heart of God, he is not terribly concerned about what you think that you deserve or do not deserve. Because the way that God treats us is not according to our standards and our merits, it's out of generosity. And I think this begins to help us to understand the difference between fairness, which is based on merit, and kindness which is actually quite unfair and so we usually define fair by who's deserving based on talents or looks or charisma or whatever it is how many of you have siblings you've lived through this you have experienced the brutal reality of the human story when it comes to your siblings because you were always pursuing fairness with your with your siblings right even if it was something that you didn't actually care about right it was like you're sitting at the dinner table and you're like, he has more peas than I do. And you're like, you don't even like peas. Why are you making this comparison? One of my favorite comedians, Brian Regan, he was the youngest of five boys. And they had that, one of those you know, obscenely long station wagons with the wood panels on it. And he always had to sit on the hump. Does anybody remember the hump? I think they, they've, they've abolished the hump and I think we're all better for it. But... <laughs> His older brothers made him sit on the hump, so he just reverted and said, great, I love the hump. I'm the hump guy. I love it. It's the best seat in the car, you know? And we always do these little balancing acts with our siblings, this rivalry, because we're always trying to pursue what we think is fair. And I think that's an interesting way, actually, for us to read the human story as it's revealed in the Bible that we see in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. When they listen to the serpent, the serpent convinces them, this difference between you and God's not fair. God's got all of this knowledge and wisdom that you're not allowed, but man, if you just take that fruit and you eat it, you'll be equal to God. It'll, The universe will be fair. It'll balance itself out. So Adam and Eve make a decision not based on intimacy with God, but because of what they have been told is fair. And what do we see the first generation right after that? The ultimate sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel. That Cain can't handle the fact that God chose Abel's sacrifice a sacrifice that was out of humility and recognition of who god was rather than obligation and so what does cain do he murders his brother because he can't handle it we see it in esau and jacob wrestling for the inheritance we see it in joseph and his brothers this resentment because joseph has gotten this vision from god and they don't think that's fair We see it in King David, who, you know, kind of ascends to this place of power and privilege. And before long, he sees a beautiful woman who's already taken. And so what does he do? He sends her husband to the front line so that he'll get murdered, so that he can take what he thinks that he deserves. So we so often equate deservedness and fairness But oftentimes when we seek fairness, it usually means that we want to be elevated, we want to be lifted up because we're not getting what we deserve out of life based on our own merit, but we also conveniently want other people to be dragged down to our level. When we perceive that things are not fair and we've got the short end of the stick, we want other people to suffer for it and to be brought down to where we're at. And I think this is the the material reality of our lives when it comes to personal justice. We like fairness. We love the idea of fairness, but we don't know what to do with kindness. And a lot of times we've been told that they're basically the same, that fairness and niceness are are kind of synonymical with kindness, because here's the reality. That f- what f- what's fair and what's nice just kind of maintains the status quo. It keeps the system working the way that it is. I actually asked that on social media this week. Like, what do you think of when you think of the word nice? And it was almost unilaterally, like, looked down upon as a word. You know, like, in the South, like, the word nice is like the kiss of death, you know? Oh, what'd you think of her? She seemed nice. And you're like, oh, man, it's over. It's over. She's done, you know? And we use that word almost, you know, pejoratively, because nice, at best, just maintains the system. And we're okay when people are nice, and we're okay when people pursue fairness, because it just kind of keeps things the way that they are right now. But it doesn't really ask anything to change. It doesn't really break open these systems of hierarchies and rules and regulations and, and who's valuable and who's not valuable. But I think when we begin to really understand of the heart of the Father and allow Him to define kindness, we see quite a different reality that radical kindness tips the scales in the favor of the other person. Or Let me say it another way. For us, justice is just about maintaining balance. But for God, justice is completely tipping the scales in our favor. God is not interested in the cosmic balancing act. God is not interested in just kind of maintaining equilibrium. It's the radical kindness of God. It's the heart of the Father that he gives way more than we think that we could possibly deserve. And this is why you and I have a very hard time with kindness, because we've believed in this balancing act. That when we've experienced radical kindness in our lives, we automatically feel the need that we have to pay somebody back. How many of you do that? Like someone does this incredibly kind thing for you and you're automatically thinking, well, what do I need to do? I'm going to go to Starbucks, I'm going to get them a gift certificate, and we're going to like, I'm going to pay them back. Which is really to say, I can't just receive the gift that you've, re- that you've given me. I can't receive it. I have to pay you back. I have to maintain this sense of balance. Because I think sometimes for us to receive radical kindness is us to touch our own weakness. That we're not always self-sustaining and powerful and capable. We feel that we have to be able to give or to contribute or whatever it might be. To say, no, 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 we're strong. We don't, we don't. It's very nice of you to do that for me, but thank you. Like, I've got it. And we don't know what to do when we experience real radical you know, scale-tipping kindness. So what I want you to do, just close your eyes, and just for 10 seconds, just think about, when was the last time that you, not that you experienced nice, that you really experienced radical kindness that just almost freaked you out. Just take 10 seconds and think about that. How did you react not well we're not you know it's 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 so hard for us just to receive just to receive the gift of kindness because on some deep level we don't feel like we deserve it or that we're allowed to just have a gift and a lot of times when we see radical kindness demonstrated for other people that are in community with us, and our family, and our friend, or whatever it is, we oftentimes grumble at those acts of kindness because sometimes we see ourselves as more deserving. Well, why did they get this and I didn't? And again, it kind of touches that place within us that, that speaks to our weakness and our neediness that we'd rather not admit to. There's this phrase that's often uh, attributed to being in the Bible, but I think it's actually quite demonic, and it says, God helps those who help themselves. And, and that's that merit-based idea. And it's so funny because I was actually doing research on that phrase because I'm a total nerd and I just sit around like Googling everything all the time. Where did this come from? And that phrase was actually intended to be ironic. I, raise your hand if you've ever tried to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It does, Literally, I mean literally tried to do it. Not figuratively. That would be weird. You can't. Like, it's not a thing. Like, go home tonight, put on your boots, put on your bootstraps, whatever those are. Try to pull yourself up by them. It doesn't work. But at some point, we kind of lost the irony of that phrase, and it became this thing that we just thought is true. And some of us even thought that it was in the Bible. But what we actually see time and again in the story of God is quite the opposite, that God helps those who cannot help themselves, that God puts himself on the line for those who cannot do anything for themselves. Because again, we, if we just think it's about merit and justice, we say pe- pe- there's certain people in the world that deserve things from God and there's certain people that don't deserve things from God. But God does not operate on that at all because his kindness is not determined by your worth, like your deservedness or your undeservedness. God's kindness is determined by his generous heart. Listen to this podcast uh, about a year ago, and it was Bob Goff, who's a wonderful author. Uh, it was an interview with him and his wife, and they were talking about their marriage over 40 years and how they've learned to communicate and how to love one another well. And, and one of the amazing things that he said was that early on in their marriage, they discovered this mantra that they've used uh, for 30 years. And he said, kindness over drama. Kindness over drama. And I heard that, and I was like, yes and Amen. Because, you know, people have asked me before, like, what, it, what is the, the most important aspect, like, the fa- facet that you seek in human beings? And for me, it's kindness. Like, that's what I want more than anything in the world. And I heard him say that. And it's so fascinating because kindness and drama are things that we wouldn't normally equate with one another. It's like kindness and unkindness. But I think a lot of times when we elicit drama in our relationships, what we're seeking is justice that's based on what we think is fair. Because we feel like we've been wronged by the other person, especially if it's somebody that we've let close into our lives, that we've been vulnerable, that we've been weak before them, and there's something has been compromised in that relationship, all of a sudden we feel this need to protect ourselves. And so what we do is we start pursuing fairness. What is fair? This is not fair. You have power over me, or whatever it might be. And so we automatically start looking for all of the things that we can draw out in the other person to drag them down to our level. How many of y'all married people kind of know what I'm talking about? None. OK, never mind. You just scrap this part of the sermon. But a lot of times when we're pursuing justice in our relationships, we're seeking to drag people down in the name of fairness. And drama in relationship comes out of this sense of entitlement that I deserve something that I'm not going to get, and so I'm going to wrestle it out of you, and I'm going to bring you down to my level. And then we wonder in our relationships why we're not growing, why we're not becoming more authentically human. I think what Bob Goff has rightly discovered in his marriage is something that we need to discover in our relationship with God. That kindness is the vehicle by which we come to terms with what it means to be a human being. That we actually become more human when we experience the gift of radical kindness in our lives. Being nice is not revolutionary. Being nice does not change the world. Pursuing fairness does not change the status quo. It keeps things the way that they are. But radical kindness is revolutionary because it breaks open, it upends, it challenges all of our assumptions of who's in and who's out and who deserves and who doesn't deserve. And it leads us into this better way of being human beings the way that God had designed for us to experience Him and to experience one another. So God's kindness will lead to the great leveling of humanity. I think I really want us to understand the true meaning of Jesus' phrase, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Because a lot of times we understand that as kind of, you know, the great pyramid of human values will be upended. And all of those that are at the bottom, they're going to be at the top. And all those who are at the top, they're going to be at the very bottom. But a lot of times we see that actually playing out in human history. And the oppressed become oppressors in the name of fairness, in the name of justice. And that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. And there's actually this beautiful strand that you can pull out of the Holy Scriptures that really give so much vision to what this actually looks like. In Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, The poet writes this, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I love that dramatic imagery. We see that time and again in Scripture of these valleys being raised up and these mountains being lowered so that the highway, the level plain, that's the place where God comes to live. That's what enables the kingdom to advance. And when we begin to understand that what he's talking about is the human family, we begin to attribute this is really what God is doing through the kingdom, is that all those people that find themselves living in the valley of their own humanity the despised, the rejected, the overlooked, the least of these are raised up into human dignity. And all of those who've chosen to live on the top of the mountain because of their power and their privilege, their self-worth, their skills, their talents, their abilities, whatever it is, they're going to be humbled. They're going to be made low. But not in a way that diminishes their humanity. And ironically enough, it's a way to give them their true value, their true humanity. It's not based on their power and their privilege. It's based on the loving kindness of God. And I love that this is the vision that Isaiah gives us in chapter 40 because it doesn't, you know, if God was just nice, these would just be, you know, dreams and wishes and God saying, gosh, wouldn't it be really great if the mountains were lowered and the valleys were raised up. Wouldn't it be just so awesome if everybody could get along and and, and just love each other? Wouldn't that be nice? And a lot of times, you know, we're okay with the nice God because He kind of maintains everything, because the system probably works in our favor anyway. But that's not the God that we have. God is not nice. God is so much better than nice, God is kind. One of my favorite questions with with prophetic verses like this, is God going to get what God wants? Because it says the mountains will be lowered and the valleys will be raised up and the rugged places will be made smooth. This is a prophetic pronouncement. This is what the future is going to hold. This is going to be what it looks like when God finishes what he started on the cross with Jesus. This is the vision for our future. And it's not a a guessing game. It's a certainty that God is actually loving enough and powerful enough that he's going to get what he wants. And so then we can ask, what is our part to play in this? How do we come to see this vision of radical kindness that upends all of our status quo assumptions of of how human beings are valued, uh, shaken up, and brought into kingdom alignment? And so I'm always looking around for the saints that are doing the work. You know, who are the people out there right now that we can watch and we can listen to and we can ask questions to say, oh, this is, this is what it can look like. And one of those for me has been Jean Vanier. I've talked about him many times before. His book, Becoming Human, is my favorite book in the world. I'd recommend it in our library, but somebody already snagged it this morning, so you have to wait a month. Uh, Jean Vognier is from uh, Canada, he was, uh, he was a, uh, uh, an officer in World War II, after that he went and got a degree in philosophy and he began to teach in France. And in 1964, he encountered these two young men that were profoundly disabled. Now, it's, it's hard for a lot of us who are younger to really picture the way the world was then, especially when it came to people who were disabled, but they were almost unilaterally uh, institutionalized. Because people with disabilities were, they were a a horror, they were a liability. We had to hide them from normal society because they would bring shame on their families. Because they were, they were terrifying and we didn't really know what to do with them. And So Jean Vanier found these two young men in an institution in France. And he bought a house and he invited them to come and live with him and a friend of his who was a Catholic priest. And out of that, the L'Arc Ministry was born. And now there's 150 of these homes around the world, and they rescue out of institutions people who are profoundly disabled mentally and physically, people who have been pressed, pushed to the outskirts of society, and they draw them back in, and they live in community with able-bodied and able-minded people, and they offer them the dignity of being a human being, and he has story after story of seeing people touch their own humanity when they're given that, that, that rightful place, when they're treated, maybe not according to what they deserve or don't deserve, but they experience radical kindness through God's people. And his philosophy of the kingdom, of kindness and gentleness, has been so revolutionary to me. I actually want us to, to, to watch a little clip of Jean Bonnier. He's kind of towards the end of his life now, but him speaking about what he's learned about this reality of God.
0: So the, the strength The beauty of human beings is that we are capable of doing beautiful things, but we're also capable of realizing that we need help, and uh, that I'm not all-powerful, I'm not God, and uh, I need community, I need church, I need Jesus, but we need an experience of vulnerability. Like the danger in our strong civilizations is the last thing we want people <laughs> to learn is to touch their weaknesses and their vulnerability. You can't ask people to do a curriculum vitae, putting all their weaknesses down. <laughs> you know, have to show that I'm better than others and and all that. So it's a, what will help people to become conscious of I need help and that I'm fragile but at the same time that I'm beautiful. I mean, we can look into the mirror and say, you know, I'm super, and I don't need anyone. I'm just God. Or I can look into the mirror and say, I'm awful. Nobody can love me. How to look into the mirror and say, you know, I'm fragile, I'm weak, I've got brokenness inside of me. It's okay, I'm loved.
1: I want him to be my grandpa. <laughs> but listening to him speak and, and, and poring over his words, he's demonstrated to me what real radical kingdom kindness is, is capable of. The way that it offers us back the dignity of being a human being. Not because we're good contributors or we're good producers. Not because we're skilled or talented or devilishly handsome or whatever it might be, but because we're beloved by God. And that's the value of radical kindness that we see within the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven doesn't value people the way that the world does. And so I think God moves through you and me. He moves through the church to make this a reality because we are the ones that have been gripped by the radical kindness of God. We've experienced that. Paul says in Romans 2, do you not know that it's God's kindness and forbearance that's led you to repentance? And that brings me to my final point when we ask the question, well then what are the wages of working in this kingdom reality when we stand there to receive our reward? And I think this is the most profound truth, that Jesus is his own reward when we seek his kingdom with pure hearts. If we think that this day's wage that these workers in the parable are receiving is some sort of financial gain or it's a place of privilege or power, so many of these things that even the disciples were still thinking that they were going to get out of being faithful to Jesus, we miss the larger point of the parable. That our reward, our wages, is the kingdom itself. And what is that kingdom? It's full and complete intimacy with Father God and with one another. That everything in the world that has been shattered by sin is brought back together in harmony, in peace, in togetherness. I think this is very problematic for those of us that have places of power and privilege and work very, very hard in the church those of us who have been disciples of Jesus for a long time, do we secretly think that we're more deserving than the person that stumbled in here haphazardly late? Are we kind of like Peter, that we're just seeking what's fair in the kingdom, not realizing that God is not interested in fairness? On Friday morning, uh, in our, in our uh, meditative prayer group, we decided to meditate on this passage from Isaiah 40. And, and it was so beautiful because the Lord kind of tied it into this neat bow. As it continues on in verse 10, it says, See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So we ask, what are the rewards of God? It's closeness to his heart. It's that we get to be the beloved of Jesus that are able to crawl up into his lap, to recline our ear against his chest and to hear his heartbeat. That's the reward. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you know that on this deepest level, that's all you really want. You don't really want power and privilege and and wealth and prosperity. You want closeness to Father God. I think when we begin to understand God's radical kindness, it profoundly affects the way that we look at the cross. That the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sin and our brokenness was not fair. It wasn't God trying to rebalance the scales. It was this profoundly kind act from our Father in heaven, to draw us back into relationship with him, to wipe out all of the stuff that makes us feel like we're not deserving, that we're not worth it. And a demonstration of his generous heart. I want you to really sit in the reality of that as we prepare to come to the Lord's table to take of the body and the blood of Jesus as that that symbolic demonstration of what is really happening at the cross, to say this was a profoundly kind act on my behalf. Not because of what I've done or what I haven't done, but because God is a generous and kind God. That the Eucharist, the Lord's table, is the great equalizer of the human family. This is the place where the valleys get raised up and the mountains are lowered. And I love that word Eucharist for the Lord's table because it means a giftedness. It's a gift we receive. <laughs> you didn't earn it. You're not, you're not worthy of it, you're not unworthy of it. That's not even the conversation when we come to the table. It's to receive a gift that puts us on level ground before our God. So everyone is welcome to the table, but I want you to understand what you're being welcomed into. To consider that question that I asked you at the very beginning. Will you suffer the kindness of God on your behalf and on behalf of the other people in this room?
0: This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.